Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 13, The Inner Struggle, Romans 7, 13 through 25. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why is the Christian life so difficult? I mean, why, once we've decided to follow Jesus, is this struggle with sin so intense? That's exactly where we're going this week on Romans Untangled as we try to look at a passage and seriously enjoy its beauty. <laughs> In one of my very favorite passages, Romans 7, 13 through 25. Hey, Steve Treichler here, pastor, senior pastor at Hope Community Church. Really glad to be with you again on this beautiful spring we're having up here in the in the upper northwest where we say use guys instead of y'all. So I hope you're doing well wherever you are at as well. This season we've been looking at one theological term each week, and at least one, and, and we've been looking at this in the last few weeks, we've been looking at an issue called the Ordo Salutis, which is a Latin phrase which basically means the order of salvation, the logical order of how God works his salvation in our lives. We've looked at the issue of election or how God is the one who moves in our lives. And it is a total mystery how that can be true. And at the same time, how uh, number four, which we'll get to, how conversion is, is, a, is a choice that we make. And how does that all fit together? The gospel call, then regeneration, being born again. And when that happens, we are united with Christ. That's going to be the one we're going to talk about towards the end of this kind of mini section here on the order of salvation. Or what I, when I used to teach theology, I called it the Asians. We're doing regeneration, justification, uh, you know, sanctification, glorification. Uh, some of the words don't quite fit in there, but, uh, and we talked about conversion and justification. This week, we're going to hit on two beautiful concepts, absolutely beautiful. And they are the phrases adoption and sanctification. So I, I want to just quote here from uh, what I think is just a wonderful uh, little little commentary that I've been using. And unfortunately, this, this little resource I have called the Lexham Survey of Theology is only available if you have the Logos Bible software. I looked for it to see if it was a, a hard copy as well, but it's not. It's only electronic, and it's only available through that that I could find that it was available through here. But let me quote on these two issues. I think they're beautiful. First one is adoption. Um, Susan Calhoun, who is the one who's the contributor on this particular um a particular topic writes this and she says adoption is the divine work of god wherein he declares regenerated believers to be his beloved sons and daughters and welcomes them into his eternal family that's a great sentence man i i i just i'm i'm, I'm grooving on just that sentence alone i i just think that it's so helpful and valuable to think that what happens when we become followers of Jesus is not only that we're forgiven of our sins. There's a whole bunch more coming. We're going to talk about that uh, today as well and when we get to the issue of sanctification. But there's more than that. I'm actually a member now 
into God's family. Now, in a sense, of course, God is the father of all, and of course, but something happens uniquely and brings me into a right relationship, and I'm welcomed into this family. God is now not just father, as scripture says, he's now Abba father, which means daddy father. It's this crazy thing that takes place where I go from being kind of an outsider looking in to now I'm seated at seated at the table. There's laughter around this table. We are having a there's plenty of food and drink, and we're having a wonderful night together as a family night. John chapter one verses twelve and thirteen say it beautifully. It says, "Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus." is who it's referring to. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You, you become a child of God. It's crazy. You're adopted into God's family. And maybe some of you listening are adopted. You've been adopted as a child. And, and of course, there's a lot of issues with that. But one of the very cool things I've always thought about this is your adoptive parents actually chose you. They chose you. They they wanted you. Now, when you, you know, I, I want my children, I love my children, but I didn't choose any of them. This is where God is, he brings you into his family because he wants you. It's just, it's just crazy to think about. The other issue we're looking at this week is the is the issue of sanctification. Of course, this is a big topic, just like justification can be a very big topic. But let me simplify it again, and let me quote again from Suzanne Calhoun. I think she does a wonderful job here. She says, sanctification is the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them to the image of his son, holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. So I love this definition because it says this. It says sanctification is the work of God. That's really important. <laughs> now, it's ongoing, so it's not a one-time event. We've found that most of these things in these order of salvation are one-time events. Sanctification is your walk with God now, Right? And a lot of times we think, okay, Jesus saved me, but now I've got to really crank it out. I've got to live the right life. I've got to do these things. And, and in reality, just as he saved you by a work of the Christ on the cross, he sanctifies you with, with the work of all the people of the Trinity, but particularly the Spirit of God working in your life right now. And he rescues us all the time from the disease of sin. I love that phrase, right? And he conforms us to himself, to the image of his son, empowered to do good works. So sanctification is not doing good works. Sanctification is the work of God where he moves in us and changes us. I I, I love this. Let me quote a paragraph from uh, what she wrote in this section, in in this uh, survey of theology. She says, the triune God not only declares his children righteous, but also progressively makes them righteous setting them apart for himself, and freeing them from the entanglements of sin. This process, referred to as sanctification, does not happen in a moment, but is the ongoing work of God throughout the life of a believer. 
in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers. In other words, it comes from uh, outside of you. It's Christ's righteousness, and he gives it to you. It is reckoned to their account. Now, I'm returning back to reading the quote, judiciously speaking. In sanctification, Christ's righteousness is imparted to you by the power of the Spirit. The converted sinner becomes more like Christ. The sinner is transformed in every area of his or her life, inward and outward, heart and action, relationships and purpose, end quote. So, The idea is here is that justification is completely outside of us. It doesn't have to do with transformation whatsoever. It's just God changing our bank account, so to speak, so that we were, we did, we were debtors, and now we have a lot of money in our account, Christ's money in our account. But that doesn't actually change the who I am on the inside. Sanctification is the Spirit of God moving in me. It's imparting the righteousness of Jesus in a way that actually changes me, and that's going to be manifested more and more and more throughout the rest of my life. It is a beautiful thing. And uh, we're going to look at this particular issue from this week on out, on how, uh, through the rest of this season, how sanctification plays out in the life of the believer. It's always messy. We'll see that today. So, Let's dive into Romans for this week. Romans 7, verses 7, excuse me, 13 to 25. What I want to do is read it through one time. Uh, If you got a Bible with you, it'd be really helpful if you were looking at it. But if not, just if you're driving or whatever, don't uh, just listen. You'll be just fine. Here we go. Verse 13 of chapter 7. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. All right, beautiful passage. Really, really impactful and has ministered to a lot of people over the years. But let me let me do the first thing we're trying to do now in this in this whole season of Romans Untangled and just 
untangle this thing because it is complicated. Uh, you know, some of it sounds like that's real straightforward, but when we really kind of dive into there, it'll be like, oh, this is kind of confusing. And it is. Let's just get the big idea here, right? The big idea. The big idea is verse 13. This is the big idea. Did that which is good then, and what is he talking about? He's talking about the law. He's specifically talking about the commandments and, and the commandment that says do not covet, right? If you remember from last week in Romans 7, uh, 7 through 12. Did that which is good then actually become death to me? In other words, it, okay, he, he established last week that the law is not sin, but was it a bad idea perhaps, you know? Did God kind of make a mistake here in putting this law out here and then we trip over it and then I I, 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 I die as a result, right? And he, he says, by no means, and he wants to make this real clear, so let me just reread chapter, verse 13. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, God's commandments, to bring about my death so that the command that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. In other words, what he's saying is, let's get the culprit here. The culprit is sin. Sin is there. Not the commandment. The commandment is good. God's ways are good. They're always very, very good. But sin, like it said last week, seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment, grabbed a hold of me. I got deceived. I believed it. And therefore, um, I died, as Paul would say, and it leads to death, right? Sin leads to death. And so what he's trying this week to say is that, did God make a mistake in all this? And the answer is no, of course not. That's, that sin is the real problem. And what, what I'm hoping you'll get out of, out of today, even though we're going to try to untangle some complicated things here, I hope you just get a hatred for sin. Just hate it. it it's, it's just there to mess you up all the time. Now, this passage has been interpreted a variety of different ways. And the big thing that people ask after they get the big idea, and pretty much everybody agrees on the big idea. You can read commentaries all over the place, and they all get the big idea, which is what I just told you, verse 13. So if you're like, okay, I just need the big idea, there it is. But when Paul goes into like illustrating it and talking about when he uses this phrase, I, Last time we talked about Paul using the phrase I, and it could have meant Paul, it could have meant Adam, it could have meant the history of Israel, right, before they got the Ten Commandments and everything else. And we kind of said, yeah, it seems like that's it. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of, of those things. They all kind of fit, and there's none that, 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 yes, let's say it's Paul's experience. It was certainly Adam's experience, Adam and Eve's experience, and it was Israel's experience. But this time... We're seeing this if we go through this, and it seems a lot more personal here. He's not going through a biblical storyline. He, he's talking in the present tense, okay? So it's so, he's not using a lot of past tense words and present tense. He's not like telling a story in this. It seems like the I here is, is limiting itself into, into the author. So, so is, this, is this Paul, right? Paul, Paul and, and who is Paul here? Who is Paul pretending to be when he uses this phrase, I? And there are five options. Okay, you ready for this? Okay, there's there's two big ones. All right, but there's there's five that I want to give to you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, all of them are are acceptable, but uh, I think uh, one does shine above the other. So the first one is this is a pre-Christian experience. 
right? This would be the non-Christian. This is a person before they know Christ. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Let me let me give you two resources that I think are great. Tom uh, Schreiner, Thomas Schreiner's commentary. He does a great job of giving all the reasons why a person would hold that it is a pre-Christian or it's describing a Christian. Uh, those are the two that he dives into. Uh, Douglas Moo, in his commentary, dives into that it could be another category, which is a, a person who's a weak Christian or what we call a carnal Christian. Um Okay, so uh, it could be these things. But the non-Christian, I'm going to give, there's like 10 reasons, but I'm going to give the big one here. The big one is verse 14 for saying it's a non-Christian. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And the argument here is basically saying there's no way that the Apostle Paul would say of a believer that they're sold in slavery to sin. Doesn't even make any sense, right? Because he says in Romans 6 that you're not a slave to sin anymore, right? So now he's saying you are. So he must be referring then, he says, to a person who's not yet been a follower of Christ, has not received this status change, right? Another one that goes here is that it's a weak Christian or it's a Christian that is not really following God very well. Uh, to me, I think this argument is just, I don't see that there's, it doesn't make any sense. And in, in what it doesn't make any sense why he'd even bring this up, because this isn't the goal of the Christian life, is to kind of live a, a half in, half out kind of life. That that To me, this argument doesn't really hold a whole lot of water. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. The, th- the third one is that this is a Christian, all right? So admittedly, the the person who will hold this view, and and I'm going to land here, this is where I'm going to land, that they're going to have a little bit of a problem. I have to explain number 14, verse 14. How's this sold as a slave to sin? What does that even mean? But but the reason is, is because they would pick it up, and this is why I would, is they would say, um, verse 18 says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in in my sinful nature. In other words, the phrase there is flesh. That is in my flesh. There's a part of me, the flesh, that doesn't get regenerated as a follower of Jesus, and therefore it is very it is very susceptible to sin. You could even say that that part of me still is a slave to sin. And that's how I would explain verse 14. Because he goes on to say, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And then he goes on to say it at verse uh, 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now, it's very hard for those to say this is a non-Christian because it's like non-Christians can't say that. They can't say in my heart of hearts, who I really am, that part of that very center of me, I delight in God's law. That, that defies everything Paul has said previously. All right? So this th- this verse then would say, who's going to rescue me from this? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. They would interpret that, I would interpret that, to say this is leading us now to someone who says, one day I will be freed from this flesh. There is no redemption plan for the flesh. It must be killed. And I, it, one day it will be killed, and I will then be set free from it one day. Now, just to be fair, the, not, the person who says this is a non-Christian in this, they would say in verse 24, who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus the Lord. They're saying that happens when you become a follower of Christ. Okay? I'll come back to why I hold what it is. I want to give you the other two. The other one is saying, if you look at verse 18, 
For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. This this translation, this person would say, it's not really talking about a Christian or non-Christian. It's just talking about the fleshly you. That part of you that doesn't have redemption can't, if it's a believer or a not believer, it's just saying this is the power of the flesh. That there there isn't good there, and it's a, it's it's very weak, and it's very susceptible for sin to just grab a hold of it and to do what it wants to do. Okay, the last one in number five, and I believe this is the one held by Leon Morris in his commentary. Although I tried to find it real quick today and I couldn't, but he basically says it doesn't matter. Just stop worrying about that. Go back to the main point. The main point is the main point. So. I am going to agree with the last two <laughs> that says, I, I think there is a lot of this where the I is he's referring to the flesh, but there are clearly places where the I does not refer just to the flesh. I will also say, don't forget the main point. Of course, let's remember that, that Paul is upholding the, the holiness and the rightness of God and the holiness and rightness of his law. But I do think this is the Christian. And I don't want to just say that because, well, because it matches my experience. However, you know, it totally matches my experience. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt to have this. Now, other people who, most people who would say, no, this is talking about a, a non-Christian, um, that would be the uh, position of Douglas Moo, for instance. Um, they would say, no, of course, this is an experience that a, a believer would have. There's a struggle with sin. But Thomas Schreiner, it's very interesting. I, I had Tom Schreiner as a seminary professor, and uh, he said he had switched his ideas on this one about two or three times. And in fact, when I took him in seminary in the uh, mid-90s, he was holding that this was not a Christian. But when he wrote his commentary, it, it, he changed his mind, and he now believed it was a Christian, as does Leon Morris and others. Um, I just think it matches the experience, and it. And the other thing it convinces me is this is exactly where Paul's going to go in chapter eight when he starts to talk about this battle between flesh and the spirit. There's this battle, and this is a precursor to that. So, with all that said, now you're all like, oh, "Okay, help me out here." Well, who cares, right? Now, let me help you to why you care. This is huge, right? It talks about the real war that we are in right now. So this would be the point. If I were teaching this in a classroom setting, and that's where I've done Romans uh, in, uh, to our church uh, for, let's see, since 2005, so 17 years, this is the point where I'd get out a whiteboard and I'd draw two circles, one small one and then a bigger one around it. And I would put in the inner circle, I would call it the inner man, as he calls it here, or your soul, or your the, the he calls in the end the, my mind, right? Or, or the, real, the real you in the sense that that's the part of you that once the flesh dies, it's going to remain. It's fit for heaven right now. And as a non-believer, that is, that is it's, it's sinful, but something that's dead, actually, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. But as a believer, it becomes alive. And so that inner circle becomes a big plus sign. It's alive in Christ. It's not only justified, meaning it's been made, it's forgiven, but there's the Spirit of God is in there, and it changes you. It changes the very, the very essence of who you are in your inner person to someone who delights in God's law. That's what this passage says. The outer circle represents 
the flesh. Now I do this on a whiteboard, and then I take my finger and I draw kind of, I, I take the outer circle and I, I put little dashes in it. So now it, it's susceptible, right? And what's the, uh, what's the, the flesh is weak. So the flesh is susceptible to itself and its own desires, which we, we live in, a, we have fallen flesh. And even on our own, we have sinful tendencies. It's also susceptible to the other two great enemies of the Christian, which are uh, the world and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the three enemies of the Christian. And it's very, it's, it's very much trying to uh, take over this fleshly part of us. Now, is the flesh like your body? Not, not quite. It's kind of like that, but not. It's, it's basically all that we still have that is not regenerated, that is still weak and sinful and has its, its, its tendencies away from God. But as a believer in Christ, in your inner man or your soul or your spirit or whatever, it is regenerated. You're made new. You're fit. You're holy and blameless in God's sight. You're, you're being, you're, that part is not only saved, it is completely righteous. It is completely holy. You're not going to get any holier on you, the real you inside. However, as the, as you grow, as you get sanctified, that has to grow and conquer this flesh that, sorry, bad news coming, that you will wrestle with till the day you die. And if you don't think you have a wrestle with sin, you're not thinking about it hard enough. You aren't looking deep enough. The older I've gotten in my in following Jesus, the more I've realized the depth of my sin. Bob Thune, pastor out in Omaha, a friend of mine, he has a great analogy. And he basically draws a cross and he draws a person who, for the first time in their life, turns their back to Jesus and then looks at Jesus and sees him. And then he draws two lines, one to the top of the cross and one to the bottom of the cross. And the top of the cross, top of the, the, the line at the top there that goes to the top of the cross says, that is your impression and your, your, your awe of the grace of God. And the bottom line is the realization of your own sin. And as you get closer to Jesus, those lines, you know, the cross becomes closer and bigger in your mind, right? Because you're closer to it. And those lines become steeper. And your awe of the grace of Jesus and how beautiful he is and how loving he is and how merciful he is at, is simultaneous with realizing, wow, wow, I thought, you know, I thought it was just the obvious sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, and, and, uh, uh in context here, let me make sure I, I speak nothing wrong with good marital loving sex and, and I like rock and roll, but you know what I'm saying? Just a wild, crazy living, right? Um, that's what I thought sin was. And then you start to realize, well, I, I was able to, you know, knock those off, but now I'm just filled with pride or I'm filled with, uh, self contempt for others. Or I have bitterness against those who've, who've done wrong to me and I can't seem to shake it. Or on and on and on, right? And it just becomes, you're like, wow, I, I, you know. And yet the grace of God becomes even bigger. What this passage does is encourage you to know that you are normal. This passage is the normal Christian life. It is filled with Struggle, 
It is filled with, at times, feeling like things are gripping you, but he is going to say here at the end that we are going to be delivered one day completely, and we now are delivered in a sense that uh, we have victory over this in Christ. And yet, it says that we are a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. The rest of your days, you will struggle with sin. I'm just telling you right now. Now, Christ has given us victory. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that um, there's no temptation that has seized us, but uh, but what is common to man, but but God is faithful and he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it every single time. We have the pathway of obedience and victory because we have it in Christ, and yet it is hard. It's really hard. And I just, what I want you to know is you're not alone. If you're a follower of Jesus today and you struggle with things, you struggle with them, the Lord, you just ask, Lord, show me my sin, and he's very gracious to show you a few things. And you say, Lord, I've been struggling with these. For me, I've been a follower of Christ. Uh, we're pushing almost 40 years now. And, and, and there's things I've been struggling with for, for a long, long, long time. And yet the Lord says, hey, first of all, you're holy and righteous in my sight. And second of all, we're going to go get those. We're on them. There are things that God has completely removed from my life. There are others that he hasn't. And by his grace and by his wisdom, he allows me to continue to struggle with them. Maybe so that it won't be an arrogant SOB. Maybe, so I have to say, God, I need you here. And not think, hey, I got this all figured out. For the good I want to do, I don't do. Why? Be, I, and I do what I hate to do, and it's, uh, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So that's the encouragement, the inner struggle of the Christian life is this passage. And I commend it to you. And I think it's a crazy encouragement for whatever you're going through this week. Hey, next week, we're going to hit Romans chapter 8. That's our last chapter of this season of Romans Untangled. And it is one of the most encouraging chapters in Scripture, uh, especially when we get to the end. People have memorized it and been really moved by how great it is. But it starts out next week with a great verse, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.